so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and thank you for being a truth seeker. I don't say that lightly, okay? I don't just stop people down the, you know, going down the street. Hey, you, are you a truth seeker? I think that would, uh, first of all, it would intimidate a lot of people, because they'd be like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> I mean, if you, somebody accused you of being a truth seeker, would you take it as a compliment, or would you think they were trying to accuse you of... I don't know, some kind of uh, some kind of nefarious uh, activity. Oh, not me. No, I'm I'm totally normal. I'm not one of those truth seekers out there. But the truth of the matter is, if you want to understand the world and what's going on around you, you can't just be a, a passive sponge soaking up whatever's coming at you from the various information sources out there. And by the way, that includes this one. So as much as I would take it as a compliment if you were to nod your head thoughtfully, stroke your beard and say, yes, yes, uh, Brian makes so much sense here. It's important that uh, you be willing to vet the information that's coming at you, whether it's from me or anybody else, so that you can better sift fact from fiction, truth from error, light from darkness. So a couple of things I'm going to touch on in today's episode, and I hope you'll bear with me and understand that um, if, by some odd chance, I challenge what you hold to be true, I'm not doing this from the standpoint of, I know more than you do, and I'm smarter than you, and you're stupid, and I'm educated, and you're not, because really, I'm not. I'm not, look, I'm not educated, I'm not rich, I'm not famous, I'm not good-looking, but I am somebody who sincerely wants to understand the world around me, wants others to think about the world around me. And I'm going to take it one step further. My goal as a commentator is not to build the biggest, most impressive audience of listeners out there who hang on my every word. My goal is to inspire people to become so proficient at seeking out the truth that they don't need me. They outgrow me and they move on in their journey You know, of course, maybe if they throw a friendly wave over their shoulder as they go, thanks, Brian, I'm on my way. But I don't want want them to be dependent on me. So if that makes sense and with that in mind, I may may share some things that that may challenge your uh, perception of of what's going on. And and I'm doing it simply to encourage you to ask those kinds of questions. So I'm going to dive right into this and and uh, here we go. I'm sticking my neck out on the chopping block. If I were to ask you to name the number one cause of war since 1898, 
I'm curious how many people would say, oh, well, that's easy. It's the media. Now, I want to share with you some excerpts from an article by Simon Black, published on SovereignMan.com. And this is actually a very interesting historical recounting of what happens when the media starts agitating for war. It starts in 1895 with a 32-year-old entrepreneur in New York City buying a failing newspaper and then hatching a bold plan to turn it around. Now, the newspaper industry was cutthroat in those days, especially in New York. Keep in mind, there were at least 16 other daily newspapers in circulation, fierce competition for readers' attention. But this young entrepreneur had an idea. Thrill the readers with tales of death, destruction, and brutality in the Cuban War for Independence against Spain. Now, if you remember, Cuba was a Spanish colony at that time, but revolutionary forces had been fighting for independence for several years. Few people in the U.S. really cared about Cuba, but the new publisher vowed to make them care. You can probably guess his name, right? William Randolph Hearst. And his paper, the, Morning, the New York Morning Journal, constantly thrust Cuba in his readers' faces. Now, the stories were full-blown sensationalism. By early 1898, Hearst's journal was printing outright fabrications of atrocities committed by Spanish troops in Cuba in an effort to whip up public support for the United States to join the war. And the government played along. Ah, big surprise. While war crimes did not yet exist, U.S. President William McKinley escalated tensions by accusing Spain of atrocities, saying in a speech that the civilized code of warfare has been disregarded. And then on February 15th, 1898, a U.S. naval vessel known as the Maine exploded and sank in Havana Harbor off the coast of Cuba. 268 sailors died. Now, several investigations were conducted, and to this day, there's still nothing conclusive explaining how that explosion took place. It's entirely possible that the explosion was caused by the Maine's onboard fuel. But Hearst, along with many other papers, jumped to publish stories claiming the Maine was sunk by a Spanish torpedo. They continued agitating for the U.S. to join the war. Well, thanks to the effective media propaganda, most Americans were in favor of war. The newspapers had cast Spain as an evil aggressor. Its commanding general, Valeriano Weiler, was routinely called a butcher. The newspapers told Americans that the fight against Spain was a necessary one, that it was a matter of moral righteousness, a crusade of good against evil. And they finally got their wish in April of, 19, April of 1898, rather, when the Spanish-American War broke out. Now, you can probably see there are a lot of similarities with the media today. The level of trust in the media is already laughably low. I mean, there was the obvious Hunter Biden laptop cover-up, which most mainstream media refused to even mention during the U.S. presidential election in 2020. Then there were the outright lies in the Russia collusion hoax, for which the New York Times was actually awarded the esteemed Pulitzer Prize. Coincidentally, Pulitzer's, the Pulitzer's named after Joseph Pulitzer, a newspaper publisher who also fabricated lies in the late 1800s and agitated for war against Spain. Then there's the case of Biden appointee Tracy Stone Manning, nominated last year to head up the federal government's Bureau of Land Management. Now, Stone Manning is a former eco-terrorist who participated in violent campaigns against forestry workers in her youth. Now, this isn't just some wild conspiracy theory. Stone Manning has admitted to wrongdoing, including sending violent threats to the U.S. Federal Forestry Service. She ultimately avoided prosecution, and she saved herself by ratting out her associates. 
But a recent Freedom of Information Act request has revealed NBC News colluded with the Biden administration to go easy on Tracy Stone Manning during her confirmation hearing and whitewash over her terrorist history. This is pretty incredible. Especially when you think about the media circus just a few years ago when the U.S. Supreme Court nominee, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, was accused of sexually assaulting someone when he was a teenager. There was no promise from NBC News or other mainstream propagandists to go easy on the allegations against Justice Kavanaugh that went back 30-plus years. Instead, they smeared his name and deemed him guilty. By the way, it's also noteworthy that during Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, several protesters stormed the Capitol and physically accosted United States senators in order to prevent the constitutional voting process from occurring. Yet NBC News declined to label these protesters domestic terrorists or to claim that democracy was under attack because they'd criminally trespassed into the Capitol. Now, this is the same media which acted as the government mouthpiece during covid justifying the public health dictatorship that took over the world. This is the same media which watched cities burn in 2020 and then said the protests were mostly peaceful. And yes, this is the same media that has routinely pushed America into war. See, it wasn't just Spain in 1898. The United States joined the Vietnam War based on a Gulf of Tonkin skirmish with the North Vietnamese, which never actually occurred. But the Johnson administration and intelligence sources said it happened, so the media reported it as fact. Then there were those supposed weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which the media dutifully reported without question and helped push the U.S. into war back in 2003. And today, many in the media are calling for an escalation against Russia. They want a no-fly zone. They cheer the president's dementia-ridden foreign policy. They praise him for impromptu comments that only escalate tensions. Most of all, they force-feed the war in Ukraine 24-7 as if that's supposed to be our number one priority. In other words, forget about the economy, rising prices, supply chain dysfunction. Forget about conflict anywhere else in the world. We're only allowed to think and to care about Ukraine and Putin. Now, Simon Black says, historically speaking, it's not far-fetched to think the media could help push the world into a major war, and one with potential nuclear ramifications. He says, it's not inevitable, but we are closer today than at any other time since at least 1962, and certainly closer than even a week ago. That's why it's important for us to be more prepared than ever before for what the world has in store for us. He says that means crafting a rock-solid plan B to make sure you can respond from a position of strength whatever crisis comes next. So let me springboard for just a moment from what Simon Black is recommending here. I agree with him, by the way. You do need to have a rock-solid plan B for whatever crisis is coming next. But in order for that plan to be rock-solid, you've got to be able to deal with factual reality. Not just whatever the narrative of the moment is telling you is true. So you got to get some skin in the game. If you don't already, I'm guessing the fact that you're listening to this program probably means you already are engaged at some level in questioning very actively the, the information coming at you. But if you were skeptical before, I'm going to tell you this is the time to double down and be ever more skeptical simply because in times of war, it's very easy for emotion to override intellect. 
And I'm going to talk about this more in the next segment about, you know, why there's there's just so much bad information out there on the Internet. It used to be that people would take time to to think about things and it was okay for someone to say, well, I I don't know if I agree with that. I'm going to need some time to think about it. And then they would actually go and think about it. But now it's like, nope, you know, you need to make up your mind and you need to have a take on this, a hot take right now. Well, sometimes it's not that easy. And all I can tell you is uh, when something comes out that uh, is, you know, gathering attention, when it's dominating the news cycle, okay, that's my first clue. If it's dominating the news cycle, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the most important story in the world. What that means is a majority of editors and producers have decided this is where we want to focus our attention. And by, uh, by virtue of where they're focusing their attention, your attention as well. So I like to ask questions like, why? Why are they choosing this as the most important thing, you know, for which my attention needs to be focused on it? I, you know, maybe that sounds too suspicious. Maybe it even sounds paranoid. But when you consider how we have been lied to, how things have been omitted, or we've just been steered or misdirected away from it, I think it's a very good habit to be in, especially, again, if you want to operate in reality. So here's the tricky part, and this is where I may actually uh, end up landing on a few people's toes. I want to share with you a commentary from the Z-Man writing about what is going on currently in Ukraine and the way that it's being reported by the media. Not just American media, but basically mass media the world over. The piece is titled Fighting Time. And the Z-Man says, One of the puzzles from the Great War is how leaders on both sides allowed themselves to get drawn into the war. He says there were plenty of reasons why each country would want war, including the infamous one that caused a certain Austrian fellow to coin the term the big lie. The problem with all the reasons is they made little sense in light of the obvious costs of war. As a result, the Great War is a great example of how events can take on a life of their own. Now, the remarkable thing about that war is that once it settled into trench warfare, no one realized the hopelessness of it. One can understand how the initial events would spiral into a global conflict. That's not a new phenomenon. Similarly, you can see how the initial moves in the war made a lot of sense to the leaders on both sides. This was the first industrial war, so they had a lot to learn. New weapons needed new tactics, but few people realized that at the start of the war. The great puzzle of the war is that the sides did not see the hopelessness of the situation once in settled into a stalemate. Both sides were losing tens of thousands of men with each attack, only to gain a few yards of ground. The Battle of the Marne and the subsequent race to the sea made sense. The losses were high, but both sides had hope for quick victory. Two years later, the French and Germans lost over a million men at Verdun, and the winner got nothing for their trouble. Now a century on, and we're getting some fresh insight into why the Western leaders in the Great War were incapable of seeing things clearly. The war in Ukraine is proving to be nothing like the Western planners imagined. They assumed the Ukrainians would stall the Russians into a stalemate of urban warfare. The world would rally to the sanctions regime, and it would quickly be a question of how long the Russians could suffer the economic consequences of the sanctions. Well, after just one month, it's clear this is not what's happening. The Russians did not fight like the NATO planners imagined. Instead of rushing to Kiev, they pinned the Ukrainian army in the north using classic maneuver tactics. 
Meanwhile, their main army is systematically destroying the Ukrainian army in the south and east. It also appears the Russians were well prepared for the Ukrainian tactic of digging into urban areas. Now it's just a matter of time before the Ukrainian army in the east is lost. Now that's just one miscalculation by the West, but the Z-Man says that should be concerning. The Russians are not doing anything novel in Ukraine. They're using classic tactics that have been used in Europe since Napoleon. Further, they are following a doctrine they evolved in the Second Chechen War. And that was a doctrine Vladimir Putin created as the guy running that war for Russia. It seems that no one in the West bothered to study the man they claim is the new Hitler. Now, this is only one small part of the miscalculation. The decision to cut off the Russian Central Bank appears to have been a massive blunder. The Russians, faced with the threat of their dollar and euro assets being seized by Western banks, have told the West, you must pay for your goods in rubles. Otherwise, they're forced to send product to the West but not be paid for it. Now, alternatively, they would have to make concessions in order to get their assets unfrozen by the West. Why anyone in the West thought this was a good idea is a mystery. It turns out the Biden administration did not consult with the Federal Reserve. Europe appears to have followed along without questioning the policy. Now that Russia has countered their move, Europe is in a terrible position. They either support the ruble with massive purchases or they face an imminent shortage of natural gas. That means rationing of energy products could happen as soon as next month. Now, of course, of course the word shortage and rationing will trigger the natural response, which is hoarding and price gouging, which will also mean a political response. And the German political elite appear to be embracing their inner Marie Antoinette by telling the Germans to wear a sweater as they shiver in the dark. Now, presumably, they will tell the people to eat bugs when the food shortages hit this summer. Maybe German TV will start celebrating the turnip winter as a way to motivate the public. Now, the Z-Man says, in fairness, we have no idea how the Russians and Chinese are viewing this thing as Western media refuses to cover that aspect. We should assume the lack of food riots and social unrest in Russia means they're not teetering on collapse. This was the prediction at the start of this war. The best and brightest in the American managerial elite predicted the Russians would have collapsed by now. They also assumed China would be wavering in their support at this stage. So the point is, we are seeing in real time how supposedly clever political leaders can stagger from one blunder to the next. Unlike the Great War, this war has one side that seems to have updated its thinking since the last century. The Russians are planning for tomorrow while the West is planning for 1985. The Biden people actually thought the speech in Poland would be his Brandenburg Gate moment. That's the most terrifying event of this crisis so far. There we see the best parallel to the Great War. The men moving pieces on the board were men of a prior age. They were trying to fight the old wars. Similarly, the political leaders were operating in a 19th century mindset. The trouble was, they were armed with 20th century weaponry. Today, the West is led by 20th century men desperate to maintain 20th century arrangements. And the Z-Man says their opponent is not Russia, China, or the New World Order, but the passage of time. Kind of an interesting thought. And again, I'm not telling you, you have to believe it. I'm just saying, that's an outside-the-box look at how to consider this, and it sure doesn't square with the, the way that things are being reported to us. Now, from here, I want to just segue into why is there so much Internet nonsense out there? I've got an excellent article here by Thomas Buckley, 
published on AmericanThinker.com. And he asks, what does deer hunting have to do with the persistence of idiot or internet idiocy, rather? Now, first of all, he says, I'm not a deer hunter. I don't have any qualms about the practice. I've helped others dress and cook deer. But he says, it's just a hobby I never took up when I had the chance, unlike golf. But he says, unlike golf, deer hunting is pretty necessary now that the populations of historical predator species, cougars or mountain lions or pumas, depending on where you live, and wolves and such, in many areas are too small to maintain local herds at, at uh, healthy levels. And the death of these predators leads to problematic herds. Until very recently, this wasn't as big of an issue as human hunters stepped into the role of predator, but hunting has declined. And so now the deer populations have become much larger, much larger rather, much less healthy, especially in isolated groups where inbreeding, deer with question mark shaped antlers and giant white spaces on their flanks, really bad if you're trying to blend into the woods, and increased susceptibility to viruses have become so common that the government organized herd cullings have had to occur. Now, he likens this to the same problems we're having with ideas and the Internet, that without a natural limiting force, even the weakest and most nonsensical notions can thrive. Now, obviously, the past has seen its share of equivalent information, expansion events and trends, but the speed at which facts and thoughts and ideas move on the Internet has destroyed the usual predators of bad ideas. And, and instead of using the word predators, maybe we could use the word counters to bad ideas. Things like nuance, history, research, Reason, time to reflect, reliable sourcing, and proper context. Those were the cougars, wolves, and deer hunters of rank stupidity. They could expose the stupid ideas for what they were so that better ideas could prevail. A kind of uh, intellectual, natural selection. But he warns here, the process is not limited to the Internet. It's just far more noticeable and destructive there. And right now we have this, this suggestion that, well, what we need to do then is we need to get social media services to step in and play the part of the predator by acting as censors and culling the Internet. Now, there are a couple of problems with that. But the thing you've got to remember here is, you know, if you are double-checking with a source that you find reliable or you're just taking the time to really think about something before you jump on the bandwagon, that's good. Maybe you even pick up a book to confirm basic facts or, you know, you you uh, talk to a few other people whose point of view you trust before you weigh in. But instead, you've got politicians and others saying, no, 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 what we do is we get to, we get the the social media services to step up here. And they'll take care of the bad ideas. The point he's making here is that the, te- the strength of a good idea is not necessarily in its inception, but rather its ability to stand the test of time. If concepts, both good or bad, aren't challenged, they simply just float eternally in the ether. The ones that are reasonable, no matter one's current or no one, matter one's personal opinion, will survive the predators, while the ones that are not will die the quick deaths they're meant to. But the organic process of the marketplace of ideas has been replaced by choices made by companies that actually have a vested financial interest in ensuring that the most that most problematic, most infectious, most viral concepts flourish. And that's why you see sensational stories, sensational headlines and and, uh, you know, ways to agitate you and make you angry or fearful to get you to click on it because you don't click on headlines that say everything is fine or the stock market has a good, steady, predictable day. Or overwhelming majority say live and let live is a good idea kind of headlines. So what survives to the point of profitability is largely facile and purposely irksome 
or triggering kind of headlines meant to encourage immediate continued interaction with whatever service, page, site, or app you happen to be using. Another class of ideas survivors is equally important. Those ideas which have been deemed necessary by the service itself. Not just the, Note that the words true or accurate aren't being used here. Just necessary to reach some predefined goal, no matter what that might be. So from electing Joe Biden to being able to monetize the influencer economy, only creating an end result that directly benefits those involved matters, and that is the most predatory of situations imaginable. Just another reason why you got to be very careful of anything you're consuming online. It's okay to be choosy, not just in your peanut butter. You are listening to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network. You've been in that situation. The person next to you is sniffling, or worse yet, <coughs> coughing. Flu, cold, and SARS-CoV-2 are everywhere. Would you like an additional layer of protection to reduce these threats with an invisible mask? Sold by hundreds of pharmacists and medical doctors, our American-made povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray, Cofix RX, lasts for hours deactivating viruses and germs that make us sick. Find a retailer near you or buy online at cofixrx.com. America Out Loud listeners use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Now the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. Now we invite you, friends, to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both in the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Hey, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, are you ready to take a deep dive 
into some more relevant topics, which may or may not challenge your prevailing view of the world around you. Again, I just want to reiterate, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you you're stupid or to imply that somehow I have all the answers, but I'm going to suggest that uh, the way we look at things, the way we consider information requires something a little more thoughtful than simply, you know, nodding our heads thoughtfully when someone says something, well, that sounds agreeable or that reinforces something I already believe to be true. We've got to be willing to question things. And, and that includes, you know, stuff that on the surface looks like it's absolutely in line with what we think. So a couple of things that I wanted to bring up is, uh, you know, I think there are plenty of people out there who want to be, who are willing to be and actually able to be problem solvers in their neighborhoods and in their communities. Why don't they accomplish more? Maybe you're one of the people who feels this frustration. And I think part of that comes down to because many of us have learned through sad experience that the laws always seem to benefit the elites. I have a perfect example of this uh, coming out of New Mexico which is where commentator Kent McManigle lives. This is what he says. The law always benefits the elites. Kent McManigle says it's aggravating that New Mexico's Supreme Court decided the petitions aimed at possibly holding the New Mexico governor accountable for her COVID overreach were legally invalid. He says it's aggravating, but it's not surprising. Somehow, the law always benefits the elite political class and their schemes at the expense of the rest of us and our liberty. Whenever more people, or mere people rather, find a, or try to, hold a way, try to find a way to hold their government accountable and make it stay within its clear boundaries, the state always finds somehow to brush their concerns aside. It finds those boundaries to be the ridiculous complaints of conspiracy theorists or extremists, even when it doesn't use those precise words. So this time it said, well, these petitions are legally invalid because, in their biased opinion, there was no crime. How could they have ruled otherwise when they're complicit in the political crimes? Kent McManigle says, what government, when government wants to do something that's clearly illegal or unconstitutional, the courts the government owns and controls nearly always find a way to twist or interpret the Constitution so they can do it. This is what interpreting the Constitution means, bending it away from its main purpose of restraining government just enough to let government get away with a crime. Crimes like government shutdowns, or I'm sorry, COVID shutdowns or mandates, or legislation concerning firearms or other weapons, legislation that isn't allowed in America, or the crime of government-controlled schools, the issuing or denial of licenses to ration national rights for a price, natural rights rather, for a price patrolling the roads to waylay travelers or whatever government was never intended to be allowed in America to do in America, rather, under the U.S. US Constitution. And he says this continues until there is no liberty left for the people, but the government still has the freedom to do anything it wants. So the benefit of the doubt is always given to government interests over those of the people and their liberty, the opposite of how it has to be. Government has been allowed to police itself, a practice that never works with any institution anywhere. He says it's as though government doesn't realize that when you remove the ability to rein it in by peaceful means, such as with petitions, you force the people to use other means. They won't keep going the way government, this won't keep going the way government believes it will. They can only push so far before they've gone too far. And they won't know they've gone too far until it's too late. Now, that won't be a pleasant day for anyone, and it will be because government won't allow the people to tell it no. 
I really respect Kent McManagle's ability to just cut right through all the fluff and get to the heart of the issue. Now, do his words ring true? Does that sound like, uh, like he knows what he's talking about? Let me back this up with a commentary from Llewellyn King. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. The political class needs to level with us. And this is one of the things that I find um, most enraging right now is the political class takes itself very, very seriously. And you can see this, especially in the, the January 6th commission, you know, the way that they're, they're playing it out. We are such victims. And, oh, these people, they, they desecrated the temple of democracy. We were so scared. It's because, look, some people were definitely misbehaving, but I don't think there was any danger of these unarmed protesters, including the ones who seemed curiously well-organized and well-trained and working in concert with one another, who forced their way into the Capitol. To say nothing of the individuals who later walked in because they were in proximity and the barricades had been set aside and, well, Capitol Police officers were waving them in, go ahead, come on in, just behave, you know. But the funny thing is the people who forced their way in, we don't seem to see much about them. I don't know of anybody who's been convicted of insurrection, but that's all the talk we hear right now. And oh, the gravity. Oh, how seriously, you know, the political class is taking this. I mean, they're, they're determined why Donald Trump needs to go to prison for what happened there. I don't know if that's going to happen. I rather doubt it. But the way they're playing this, it uh, just comes off as so much victim-based political melodrama, and yet they expect us to take them very, very seriously. And I think they probably realize, you know, their credibility is waning, and when enough people stop believing in what the political class is saying, they're essentially just kind of figuratively swinging in the breeze. For some reason, that kind of scares them. So this article, the political class needs to level with us gives you some good examples of what this looks like. Llewellyn King says, There is a rough road ahead for the world, and our political class isn't leveling with us. As Steve Odland, president and CEO, I'm sorry, Steve Odland, president and CEO of the Conference Board, one of the nation's premier business research organizations, said in a television interview, Inflation will continue at least until 2024 and longer if things continue to deteriorate with the supply chain and the war in Ukraine. Now, particularly, Odland, who serves as a director of General Mills, fears a global food crisis with famine in Africa and many other vulnerable places if Ukrainian farmers don't start seeding spring crops to start this year's harvest. Now, already Ukraine, known as the world's breadbasket, has cut off exports to make sure there's enough food for their own people as war rages. Odland sees U.S. inflation continuing at 7% to 8% for several years at best. But his primary worry is global food supplies, as countries face a crisis of new and frightening proportions. His second worry is stagflation. If the rate of productivity falls below 3%, then we have stagflation, Odlin told Llewellyn King during a recording of the White House Chronicle on PBS. That's the weekly news and public affairs program he hosts and produces. Odlin faults the Federal Reserve for being timid in raising interest rates to counter inflation. But Llewellyn King says, I fault the political class for not leveling with us, both parties. As we are in a state of perpetual election fervor, we're also in a state of perpetual happy talk. Get the rascals out and all will be well when my band of happy angels will fix things. That's what the political class says, and it's a lie. 
So Llewellyn King says we are in for a long and difficult period, which began with the pandemic that disrupted supply chains and set off inflation. And now the war in Ukraine has compounded that. Supply chains won't magically return to where they were before COVID-19 struck. And more likely, they will have further constrictions because of the war. New supply chains will have to be forged, and that's going to take time. So, for example, nickel, which is used in the batteries that are reshaping the worlds of electricity and transportation and for stainless steel, will have to come from places other than Russia. Now, at present, Russia supplies 20% of the world's voracious appetite for high-purity nickel. Opening new mines and expanding old ones will take time. And the world's largest challenge is going to be food. Starvation in many poor countries and high prices at the supermarkets in the rich ones, including the United States. Now, there are technological and alternative supply fixes for everything else, but they will take time. Food shortages will hit early and will continue while the world's farms adjust. There will be suffering and death from famine. The the curtailing of Russian exports will affect the United States in multiple ways some of which might eventually turn out to be beneficial as the creative muscle is flexed. So, for instance, in the utility industry, someone who's thinking big and boldly is Dwayne Hiley, president and CEO of Tri-State Generation and Transmission Association in Denver. Hiley told Digital 360, the weekly webinar that emanates from Texas State University in San Marcos, the challenging problem of electricity storage could be solved not with lithium-ion batteries, but with iron-air batteries. So in its simplest form, an iron-air battery harnesses the process of rusting to store electricity. The process of rusting is produced to, is used rather to produce power when it's exposed to oxygen captured on site. To charge the battery, an electric current reverses the process and returns the rust to iron. Now clearly, as Hiley said, this isn't going to work for electric vehicles because of the weight of iron. But in utility operations, these batteries could offer the possibility of very long drawdown times, not just four hours, as with current lithium-ion batteries. And there's plenty of iron stateside. Another highly concept is that instead of dealing with all the complexities of transporting hydrogen, it should be stored as ammonia, which is more easily handled. Now, this isn't magical thinking, but it's the kind of thinking that will lead us back to normal someday. The point here is that politicians should stop the happy talk And tell us what we are facing. Why do you suppose they won't? In fact, let me give you an example of of politicians not telling us the truth or or clinging to a false model. Um, One of the things that I saw recently that just, I'm sorry, but it just raised my blood pressure was Dr. Fauci on, uh, he was being interviewed on British television. And he was making the claim, we may never know if the costs have outweighed the benefits of these lockdowns that were imposed on the public all around the world. Well, here's a dose of reality for the good doctor regarding the flawed Imperial College model that fueled his fear machine. This is published on nationalreview.com, and it's authored by Steve Hankey and Kevin Dowd. They say the defining event in the history of Western COVID lockdowns occurred on March 16th, 2020. That was the publication of the now infamous Imperial College London COVID report. That's the one that predicted that in the absence of any control measures or spontaneous changes in individual behavior, there would be 510,000 COVID deaths in Great Britain and 2.2 million in the United States. 
Now, this prediction sent shockwaves around the world. In fact, the next day, the UK media announced that the country was going into lockdown. The impact of the report was amplified by the UK's soft power machine, the BBC. You got to understand, the BBC's reach has no equal. Broadcasting in 42 languages, reaching 468 million people worldwide each week. And efficiently disseminating its message. With the BBC in full cry and the public genuinely alarmed, there was just no room for dissent. So a copycat cascade then took hold, with the U.S. and other countries embracing London's message and policies. And the result was a policy based on a defective model that originated at Imperial College and under the leadership of Neil Ferguson. I thought this was particularly enlightening. I think most people at this point can realize, okay, so they were off a little bit in their... their predictions, right? 510,000 COVID deaths in Great Britain, 2.2 million in the U.S. Well, anybody can make a mistake. Wait till you hear how many mistakes, though. This particular Imperial College London has made under the leadership of Neil Ferguson. The model's major flaw is its assumption that people would be unresponsive to the dangers that accompany a pandemic. And that behavioral assumption is simply unrealistic. If people are told they're in danger of catching a potentially lethal disease, most will take action to reduce their exposure. But the Imperial team turned the world on its head with fantasy numbers about a scenario that could never materialize. Before hurrying into panicked policy decisions, UK policymakers should have been aware that Neil Ferguson's Imperial College team had a history of defective modeling. With minimal effort, policymakers would have quickly discovered that the team had a track record that makes astrology look respectable. Now, that dreadful record started with the UK foot and mouth disease epidemic in 2001, during which Imperial College modelers persuaded the government to adopt a policy of mass animal slaughter. See, their model predicted that the daily case incidences would peak at about 420, At the time, the number of incidences had already peaked at just over 50 and was actually falling. The prediction missed its mark and as many as 10 million animals, most of which could have been vaccinated, were instead needlessly killed. Shortly thereafter, in January of 2002, the Imperial team suggested that up to 150,000 people in the UK could die from mad cow disease. Well, as it turned out, the total number of UK deaths was 178. Another miss for the Imperial team. Then, in 2005, Neil Ferguson suggested that up to 200 million people could die from bird flu globally. Now, he justified this claim by comparing the lethality of bird flu to that of the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak, which killed 40 million. Now, by 2021, the bird flu had killed 456 people worldwide, making it Imperial's biggest miss yet. And then Neil Ferguson and his team were back at it again in 2009 when they claimed that 65,000 people could die of swine flu in the UK. By the end of March 2010, the outbreak had killed fewer than 500 people before petering out. Neil Ferguson's reasonable worst-case scenario was over 130 times too high. Yet another big miss. And in each case, there was the same pattern. Flawed modeling, hair-raising predictions of disaster that missed the mark, But most importantly, no lessons learned. The same mistakes were repeated over and over again and were never challenged by those in authority. Why? 
Maybe the Imperial College models are ideal fear-generating machines for politicians and governments craving more power. H.L. Mencken put his finger on this phenomenon when he wrote that the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. So the Imperial College modeling team should have faced an audit of its models and practices after the foot-and-mouth disease debacle more than 20 years ago. Had that been done, later fiascos might have been avoided. Be that as it may, Imperial should certainly face an audit now, and it should focus on the inadequacies of the team's models and on how faulty policy recommendations were derived from them. Steve Hankey and Kevin Dowd say governments across the world should also initiate their own public inquiries to draw lessons and address the measures needed to protect their citizens from reckless public health modeling. Never again should scientists armed with flawed models get away with shouting pandemic in a theater filled with politicians and bureaucrats eager to grab at yet more power. He's got a nice they they have a nice way with words on this. And I think they're dead on. I'll actually have a link to this in the show notes. And I hope you'll check it out. Now, I'm going to shift gears and go in a totally different direction. And this is possibly a much more controversial direction, but I, I feel like i got to go here. Um, I'm sure you've probably caught wind about, uh, you know, how uh, a Disney executive was just recently interviewed and was talking about how, well, as the parent of a, uh, what does she say she had? One child was pansexual and another was non-binary or perhaps transsexual. And anyway, she her her goal was well. What I need to do is make sure that uh, at least fifty percent of the characters in Disney's films, especially films for kids, are representative of the LGBTQ plus community. Now, before I go one word further, I just want to point out here: every one of us knows individuals who are either gay or perhaps who have gender identity issues. And if that sounds rude, how dare you say that those are issues? I'm sorry, but a person who can't decide if they are a man or a woman or a boy or a girl or somewhere in between or one of the many other invented genders, they're, they're dealing with something. And this does not mean that we should, should withhold compassion or otherwise you know, persecute them or make their lives more difficult. At the same time, you and I have the absolute right to refuse consent as far as being drafted into someone else's fantasy. And this is getting politicized in so many ways. I mean, remember when it was just confusion over bathrooms here a few years ago? Well, do we really want men going into the women's room and, you know, biologically born men going into the women's room and teenage boys in the girls' locker room? Well, here we are. Swimmer Leah Thomas has been in the spotlight for winning the NCAA Women's Swimming Championship, you know, And yet, uh, Leah, in quotation marks, was born a guy. And it's like the emperor's new clothes. We're supposed to just pretend that there's nothing wrong here. Why, the emperor's pantyhose look amazing. Don't they look amazing? If you are like the young child in the story of the emperor's new clothes and say, I'm sorry, I'm not seeing it. The emperor's standing there buck naked. What? What's the deal? Oh, you're rude. You're, You're terrible. You're attacking people. And basically... What started as this uh, crusade to, to protect the bullied has become a crusade to bully those who say, hey, I don't want my kids being groomed or otherwise recruited 
by teachers or others who are activists in the guise of educators within the school system. I, I want to proceed cautiously here because, again, my goal is not to, to generate anger or to generate fear. I'm not trying to point you to an enemy, but I feel like if I don't say something when I have a chance to speak up, that would make me complicit or at least, uh, you know, make me <sighs> silence equals, you know, acquiescence, I think, in, in this instance. And I, I don't agree. I don't consent to this kind of thing. Now, my wife is a public school teacher. And there are a certain amount of politics that actually come into this. She was actually approached by kids in her math class who said, would you consider being our, um, I forget what the, the word is, counselor or basically their advocate on faculty for they were going to start a gay straight alliance club or an LGBT club of some sort there at, at her middle school. Now, I got to point out, this this is not in some big city. So it's not like I'm yes coming from Los Angeles. This is a pretty common thing. I live in a fairly rural agriculture-based community. And I do love how my wife handled this. Because she told the kids, well, um, she goes, I have to be careful because I have a lot of things I'm involved in right now. But most importantly, I don't want to give the impression that uh, I favor some students over other students. I want to make sure all of my students know that I love and care about them equally. And then she went to her principal and actually went to, I think, another counselor there at her school and expressed that same concern. Hey, I would really appreciate it. You know, how would you handle this? Um, I don't want to tell these kids no and, and uh, you know, just, no way, I don't want any part of what you're, you know, trying to hatch here. But how do I tell them I just want to serve all of my students without singling out, you know, this particular group of students. Because there are a lot of, you know, pretty conservative-minded people in this community, and it would would definitely become a cause of controversy. And the principal, I believe, was pretty understanding. The other teacher or the other counselor that my wife talked with um, seemed disappointed, but, you know, she took it in stride. Now, again, this is this is not, you know, some big leftist enclave where this kind of thing is to be expected. I live in a rural part of the Intermountain West, and this is one of the things I like is that uh, we live a pretty reality-based existence here. But, you know, I think these kids were sincere in asking her to take part. But I have this deeper concern for the larger trend that we're seeing where teachers are becoming activists who are actively recruiting kids into gender identity and sexual orientation programs or or clubs. I've got an article here by Abigail Schreier, and this is from her Substack account. With leaked documents and audio from the California Teachers Association revealing efforts to subvert parents on gender identity and sexual orientation. Now, look, incensed parents make the news almost daily right now objecting to radical material taught in their children's public schools. But little insight has been provided into the mindset and the tactics of the activist teachers themselves. But thanks to this leaked audio from a meeting of the California Teachers Association, or CTA, you now have some insights that are pretty tough to deny. This was a conference advising teachers on best practices for subverting parents, conservative communities, and school principals on issues of gender identity and sexual orientation. Now, speakers went so far as to tout their surveillance of students' Google searches, their Internet activity, and hallway conversations in order to identify and target sixth graders for personal invitations to LBGTQ clubs 
while actively concealing these clubs' membership roles from the parent from the participants' parents. Abigail Schreier says, Documents and audio files recently sent to me and authenticated by three conference participants permitted a rare insight into the CTA's sold-out event in Palm Springs held from October 29th through the 31st of 2021. The conference was called Beyond the, Bina- Beyond the Binary, Identity and Imagining Possibilities, and was intended to provide best practices workshops, encouraging teachers to have the courage to create a safe environment that fosters bravery to explore sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression. That's according to the the background of a talk given by fifth grade teacher C. Scott Miller. Now, several of the workshops advise teachers on how to create a Gay Straight Alliance Club or GSA. One workshop called Queering in the Middle focused on what practices have worked for successful middle school GSAs and children at this age developmentally. But what makes for a successful LGBTQ middle school club? What to do about meddlesome parents who don't want their middle schoolers participating in such a club? What if parents ask a club leader, point blank, is my child a member? Okay, well, here's an example of uh, of some of the deception that's involved here. Buena Vista Middle School teacher and LGBTQ club leader, Lori Caldera, says, because we're not official, we have no club rosters. We keep no records. In fact, we really don't want to keep records because if parents get upset that their kids are coming, we're like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they came. You know, we would never want a kid to get in trouble for attending if their parents are upset. Now, the advice to those who run these clubs is keep no records so you can plead ignorance of the membership with the members' parents. In fact, uh, middle school teacher Kelly Baraki can be heard in the same session describing having named her club the Equity Club. And then UBU rather than the more ubiquitous uh, GSA. Now, the audio recording of this lecture shows these speakers talking about how they they miss the kids when they don't join us. One of the teachers said, we have LGBTQ kids who come to us and they come and spend a year with us and they get all the love and affirmation they need. And we give them tools to be powerful and brave and bold. And then they go hang with their friends at lunch and they do their things and we love them for that. But we miss them when they don't join us. So we saw our membership numbers start to decline. Now, are you, are you getting what's being said here? Middle school kids apparently did not have endless interest in sitting around with their teachers during lunch discussing their sexual orientations and gender identities. So according to these teachers, we started to brainstorm at the end of the 2020 school year what we're going to do. We got to see some kids in person at the end of last year, not many, but a few. So we started to try and identify kids. When we were doing our virtual learning, we totally stocked what they were doing on Google when they weren't doing schoolwork. One of them was Googling Trans Day of Visibility, and we're like, check! We're going to invite that kid when we get back on campus. Whatever they follow, the Google Doodle links or whatever, right? We make note of those kids and the things they bring up with each other in chats or emails or whatever. So beyond electronic surveillance of kids' internet use, these teachers say we use our observations of kids in the classroom, conversations that we hear, to personally invite students. Because that's really the way to kind of get bodies in the door, right? They sort of need a little bit of an education. One one of the teachers says, because I'm the teacher who runs the morning announcement, here's another strategy I can give you. I'm the one who controls the, the messaging. Everyone says, oh, Miss Caldera, you're so sweet, you volunteered to do that. Well, of course I'm so sweet, I volunteered to do that. Because then I control the information that goes home. And for the first time this year, students have been allowed to put openly LGBT content into our morning announcement slides. 
Now, she actually brags about uh, how, you know, parents complained when they were trying to introduce this material to kids before. So they did a little switch up and tricked the kids and the parents and put it right up front. So by the time parents were notified of it, it was too late. Your kids have already been taught it. One parent came and said, hey, I'm upset that you just forced me to have a conversation about sexual orientation and gender identity with uh, with my 12 year old. And this teacher, Baraki, she mocked the parent to her audience. Oh, I know. It's so sad, right? You had to do something hard. Honestly, your 12-year-old probably knew all of that. Caldera, on the other hand, bragged about, well, you know, another parent was invited to take their kid to a private school that more aligns with them. Well, that's a win. Good. We count it as a win. Plus, I hate to say this, but she says, I have tenure. Thank you, CTA. You can't fire me for running a, a GSA. You can be mad, but you can't fire me for it. She says, we've never crossed a line, but we've sure wanted to. Now, if that doesn't sound like activism masquerading as education, I don't know what does. And in fact, I'll take it one step further and say, this doesn't sound like people who are sincerely concerned about these kids' mental health. This sounds like people who are grooming youngsters for reasons that only make sense to them. It might be time to speak up while you still can. This is the Disciples of Liberty Show. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network. <laughs> 